This is Jello Chow Chow, the all Jello show. If you even think of hanging up or leaving the room for a scotch, we will murder you. Now listen, Great Creeperson and the Phantom Eric and Chris want to take you on a ride through dark alleys and bright rooms, long stairways, and backstage at the art gallery. If you want to live, you'll don your black gloves and join them for the ride. Let's get into it. Let's I talk about time this film. To talk about Profundo Jello. You guys get started on I'm going to go grab another beer. Since okay. sound funny, or we're funny when we're drinking. I thought, th- I thought, th- I thought this was Eric was going to be covering this it one. Is. <laughs> <laughs> and I have to pay, so when he okay. comes back. You go ahead and do that. I'll hold so, down um, so put, let's put up put up <laughs> put up one of those intermission signs. Check out our snack bar. Get your hot dog. We'll go to the snack bar. I'm gonna pour a little bit more. Whoa, this ten percent is really affecting my ninety percent. Whoa. Wow, that was like almost like political. That was almost topical. <laughs> What that was. Okay. Ninety ten, everybody. So Eric's right, back. Away, Eric. Yeah, sorry, that was very unprofessional of me, but I figured Chris is leaving. No, it's okay. I 50. might go make a cup of coffee when he gets back. So uh... <laughs> fifty episodes, I can do whatever the fuck I want. <laughs> I want to leave in the middle of the show. I mean, we're already an hour and a half in. Usually, we're done by now, but it. No. No. I still have to make dinner. Good God. <laughs> Damn time zones. Yeah, I know. Right for bed. <clears throat> so this episode is going to be hosted by Mr. Eric. Jeez. He picked Deep Red to uh, talk about a little bit. Yeah. So um, would you like to take that away, sir? Well, sure. Um yeah, I know when we uh, we put out, you know, we let the listeners vote on um, three that we thought would be a good way to kind of round off our top 50. And once we had those three decided, we kind of decided amongst ourselves who was going to kind of lead the discussion on which one. And it's kind of a consensus that I would just take deep bread because it is the 50th episode and I deserve it, but also because... A long, long time ago, when I was just a young lad, uh, I had a show called 100 Years of Horror, and 
I usually like for each episode I like to also pick a topic that would go with it so it wasn't just a random movie out of the blue and when I was time to do my when it was time to do Gallo movies hi Chris broke the seal <laughs> I don't know I thought uh you'd read you know maybe creep wouldn't pick, creep would have told me to pick strip nude or something but at the time I was like you know I'm gonna pick one that usually at the top of people's lists or at, at least you know notable even if it's not the best film so I picked Deep Red um, I went back and kind of listened to the episode today and kind of as a little fun fact like in the introduction I said something about um, I'm starting up a show with Creep Creeperson called Yellow Chow Chow so go <laughs> check that out if you end up liking this episode at all so it's kind of like a whole full circle type thing here it's awesome Back to now we're up to episode fifty, and uh, just gonna mention or just gonna get the discussion kicked off now. Unless Creep needs to go make his coffee. No, I'm good, dude. You're good, power through. And I think I think I could do it without leaving my chair. Wow. That's pee. <laughs> coffee. Um, my my cure was taking up too much room in the kitchen, so I had to move it into the office. So oh, it's nice. right over there. It's awesome. Yeah, it's kind of nice. My cure crapped out of me, and I thought of using your method of throwing it on the floor and kicking it, but it works, dude. I have a coffee maker, which is a normal twelve cup carafe, but also has a second side where you can put a K cup in. Wow, that's awesome! Cool. Yeah, it's great. It, it wow. solves birth. Uh, you know, it solves birth. <laughs> it solves both problems. <laughs> Fucking hell! <laughs> Don't forget the catapult. <laughs> All right. All right. So, Deep Red. Um, I think. Well, I don't have. You know, the the second installment of so. Uh, Deadly, So Perverse hasn't come out yet, so I can't read it from that wonderful book, but I'll just throw out the synopsis or storyline from IMDb, and we can all laugh at it and make fun of it. Um, this is written by Ed Sutton, Ed Sutton at mindsprig.com. Thank you, Ed. We're on imdb.com. A psychic who can read minds picks up the thoughts of a murderer in the audience and soon becomes a victim. Read people's thoughts. An English pianist gets involved in solving the murders. They should say jazz pianist. I mean, he's not just some boring old Beethoven guy. Or flaccid. Right. Yeah. Um, but he finds many of his avenues of inquiry cut off by new murders. And he begins <laughs> to wonder how the murderer can track his movements so closely. Right? I mean, when was the last time you were really scared? Psycho? The Exorcist? Jaws? Now there's Deep Red. I don't know if I would, I mean, maybe we could lump that up there with those those icons, it's possible, but this was uh, Argento's, I don't know if you want to say return to Jello, um, but he did his, you know, his famous animal trilogy, and I think he decided he was going to take a break for a movie or two, but then he came back with Deep Red, and he came back with a purpose, and um, I remember being impressed by it the first time I saw it, and watching it again here. Watch the uh, over two hour long Italian Profondo Rosso cut. Butchered that. But um, I think, like I, I mentioned when I talked about it being in my top five, I think it, it stays pr 
pretty cohesive throughout the whole plot. Um, I don't know if that synopsis really got to the heart of it, but yeah, it's basically this pianist is out in this city square after, uh, I don't know, he's meeting up with his mirror image almost, Marco, or I'm sorry, Carlo, I'm thinking of a different guy, <laughs> and uh, he looks up in a window and he sees this psychic, psych, psych, psychic? Um, murdered, and uh, basically the whole plot revolves around him, he goes up to the house to try to save her, and afterwards the whole plot kind of revolves around him thinking he saw something and trying to get around what it was that he saw. And this kind of gets to a lot of things we've talked about with Argento in the past, I think. Um, it's this concept of people seeing something but not really being able to remember what it was. Here comes the raspberry. Thank you. <laughs> you guys move something in here? We didn't fucking move it. Who the fuck are you? What are the cops? Are you crazy? Something's out of place. Are you Something's crazy? not right. Did you take one of these pictures out here? Yeah, I really liked it. I thought I was going to hit it. We're very careful not to do that thing. Yeah. Anyway. Listen. You graphic murder. are the proletariat of the piano, and I'm the bourgeois. Or no, vice versa. I, you're, I'm the bourgeois. You're the proletariat. I can't yeah. remember which. Yeah, you're you're the you know the straight laced guy. I'm the drunk. I kind of like that dichotomy those two guys had. But yeah, yep. <clears throat> if you um, there is a book called Broken Mirrors, Broken Minds, written by Maitland McDonough, who is eventually who eventually went on to become a mainstream movie reviewer, and she spends a lot of time talking about the symbolism. Uh, and the relationships of the characters in this film, and um, clearly there is a a lot to be made of the Carlo and Mark relationship. So, uh, but but you know the the good thing is you don't have to watch the film with that sort of you know critical eye. You can just yeah. watch it and yeah. for the enjoyment of it. So, yeah, it probably deserves some raspberries in certain parts, but I think one of the things that always sticks with me and still does to this day every time I watch it is just how uh, empty that city square was. I think I tried to bring it up during Tenebrae, how you always have this feeling like, you know, there's people around, like maybe around the perimeter, but in the very center, there's nobody. So you just have this feeling of like, because they're surrounded, something bad has got to happen, and... You know, usually you want to be in the corner and have your back against the wall so you can see everything. But um, there's just this vulnerability of this empty city square. It's only these two guys. You know, they barely fill. You know, they're they're barely figures within it. So it just really stands out to me. Uh, I really like that part of it. Well, I mean, I think every time they show what is it, the blue bar or yeah, whatever that bar bar is, it almost looks like a painting. It doesn't even yes. look real. So Norman Rockwell. But I think the idea is that it's really, really late at this point. You know, the the scene where I, I really like this. The, you know, the the you know, there's so many things to talk about with this film, and um, I'm Creep has been quiet because I know he doesn't like the film as much as the two of us do. Um, no, it's not that. It's just not very good in the middle. Okay. <laughs> but there, I I think well, that the I think that Deep Red. One of the things that makes it so great are the set pieces. And you can start with 
the the very very red psychic conference scene um, and then you can move to that town square where you start with the fountain that has the water flowing out of it and then eventually after we get through the scene in Helga's apartment which is in and of itself its own set piece we go back to the town square this fountain is turned off and Mark and Carlo are having a discussion about memory and um, maybe there was a, the picture was moved because it represented something important and you know there's there's that scene at the, you know where Mark is looking out the window and he sees the killer walk away in the raincoat and so he sees that as well I mean there's not it's not just what did he miss when he was walking through the hallway? But there's also, he looked out the window and saw somebody walking away, but he also saw Carlo, and he doesn't realize that until the end that they're not the same person. Um, but the movie continues to have these set pieces. I mean, they move on to this middle part with Gianna and Mark and the arm wrestling thing, which is really stupid. Um, and it's kind of comical, but after you watch it a bunch of times, it's it's like kind of... You can see why they cut a lot of these scenes out of the American version. Um, yes. But, but, the, set, but the, um, the set piece then moves over to um, the woman... I mean, you know, the story is ridiculous. The woman who wrote a book about urban legends who heard the sound of the music with the kid in the house who lives in some house and then Mark finds the book and because he finds the book the killer has to kill the woman who wrote the book. I mean, <laughs> yeah. It's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. But that whole thing with the bathtub and the, the birds and that set piece is really awesome. Um, and you know the, the, the returning to that scene where she writes you know the, the name of the killer in, in, um, in the fog on the window is really cool. Um, <clears throat> And then what? I'm trying to think of the other set pieces that happen after that. The the guy, uh, the guy who's in his study, and that dummy comes after him. And then um, you know, of course, you have that really. And I think this is where Creep starts to lose it. The scene in the middle where Mark decides that he's going to investigate the house. Yeah, the villa. Um, and again, um, I think it's really important. You know, maybe we won't be able to cover this at, at, to the to the extent that I think it deserves. Uh, covering, but the difference between the U.S. version and the fully uncut Italian version, there's a lot of stuff that's cut from where Mark is investigating what's going on and kind of rummaging through the house and looking for clues in the house. Um, you know, so but I thought I thought that you know what was done visually and cinematically in the house uh, was really cool. Um, but it did linger a little bit, and it does, you know, if you're not fully awake and you're not really uh, receptive to the artistic aspects of the film, that part of the film is really going to put you to sleep. Um, but then, you know, after that we have the fire, and we have the school, and we have, you know, it's just it's just like one set piece after the next, and if you are just entertained by, you know, these little vignettes uh, that kind of loosely tie the story together, that's what makes the film really, really fantastic for me. Um, if you start to kind of look at the script and start to pull apart and look for plot holes, um, you'll, find, you'll find a lot of them. Um, um, but that's, you know, that's the, my first kind of... It's, it's a beautiful movie, and the isolation and the voids 
and the giant master shots he uses in them are great. Um, there's a lot of really cool suspenseful scenes, like when he's playing the piano and the shit starts falling on the piano, and he's like, yep. oh, like that scene's amazing. And <clears throat> the psychic chick Helga, she's um, the chick from uh, New Train Murders, which is like a big yay movie for me. <laughs> and she's great in that too. Like, yeah, I've never seen that. that awesome. It's a good film. It's basically Last House on the Left on a train. On a train, okay. That's kind of a good awesome movie, isn't wasn't it? Wasn't one of the guys that did one of the early Giallo directed that? The guy did um, House of Laughing Windows. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah? Anyway. Aldo Lado? Aldo Lado, yeah. Poopy? Yeah. Oh, Poopy. Who did... No, Lado did... Who saw her die? Last Dolls, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, okay. All right. Anyway, oh, sorry. Yeah. Um, no, that's cool. Um, the music is great in it. Oh yeah, I mean, the I didn't bring that up. Are... I started thinking about the music, yeah. and I didn't bring it up yet because I figured we would talk about it eventually. <laughs> like, I like the the side characters in this movie a lot more than the two leads. Like, the side characters are so much more interesting. And so much darker, and have yeah. so much, so many layers to them. Yeah, I know yeah. you like Carlo's buddy. Carlo, Carlo's buddy, mom. Uh, yeah. Even. Yeah, the... Go ahead. I was gonna say I definitely agree with you there. I think there are some parts about uh, between Mark and um, Gianna at the beginning that I kind of liked. I liked, you know, them sitting in the car, the seat falling down, yeah, the visor can't stay up. I think that's kind of just a cute. That was fun. And, I like those touches, but they, yeah, they really strayed away from that until the end, where you just kind of figured, why did they even waste their time building this relationship when it's kind of thrown away? But yeah. So, what kind of impact did this movie have on the genre when it came out? Do you guys? No, like, is that something that's been recorded properly? I don't know. I mean, it, if I were to speculate, my initial reaction would be that this kind of came at the end. You know, yeah. at 1975, we're kind of done with it, and most of these directors have moved on to Bellicio Tesco or cannibal movies or horror movies, and Argento was like, no, 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 no. I'm going to come in and I'm going to do something that's completely different but still giallo um, just to prove that I'm still the master. But I don't know. I mean, that's kind of from what I've read and, and from what I've speculated by what I've watched. Um, yeah. And I, because I mean, I can't think of a film after Deep Red other than Tenebrae that's had a lot of impact on this particular genre. So, well, Strip Me For Your Killer came out the same year as Deep Red. Okay. So, like, I, I know he was probably sweating. And that's yep. what was probably going, fuck, I don't know if anyone's going to like the movie. <laughs> Which one's going to come out on top, yeah. Yeah, without us being there, I guess it's really difficult to know um, what the, the atmosphere of the crowds were like at each film. But um, I think... I mean, by this time, he was already, like, like legitimized. Yeah. So. Did this movie do well in Italy? Because I know, like, in the beginning of his career, 
his movies were doing better outside of Italy than inside. Yeah, I think that was kind of the case with this one too. I haven't read too much about it, but I think when I first was reading about it a long, long time ago, this was kind of his attempt to be legitimized as more of a worldwide um, phenomenon, kind of like how Psycho had already been, and then recently with The Exorcist and Jaws, um, those had gotten worldwide... Um, just people had every, everywhere had seen those movies, so he was kind of get, trying to get that, I think, with Deep Red. And I think whether or not that... I don't think that really occurred. Um, you don't really hear a lot of people outside of the, the genre talk about it, but... But I think too that you know, especially if you if you talk about the music in Deep Red, and just um, the general kind of hyperness of Deep Red, it seems like it's got this hyper. I, I don't even know what hyper means, but if you attach it to like a as a prefix to a word, it it kind of feels like um, it's a hyper jalo. Hyper word. I don't know if that really means anything, but it feels like um, Argento was practicing a little bit for Suspiria with this film, um, because yeah. you know he used the same um, band to record the, the soundtrack, um, but also, I mean, just you know, certainly Suspiria um, is over the top when it comes to its kind of color palette, but I think that um, a lot of the uh, a lot of the just the visuals that you know come from in Suspiria kind of were influenced a little bit by what he was experimenting with in Deep Red. Um, For sure. But you know the, the 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 whole Goblin thing. I mean, you cannot talk about Deep Red without talking about the music. Um, and up until this point, Argento had used uh, Ennio Morricone to uh, do the soundtracks for his Giallo films. And I think, you know, the, the story goes that he wasn't really happy with the soundtrack that um, Morricone did for Four Flies. Um, and so he recruited somebody else to do the work for um, Deep Red. And it's so different. And, you know, this the scene where Helga is standing by the door and she gets this kind of psychic thing about, hey, the person outside the door is the, the killer. And then the next thing is the door opens and this big butcher's cleaver comes flying in. And then we start up with this goblin music that's like this progressive rock stuff. It's not suspenseful. It's not scary. It doesn't have that Ennio Morricone, like, you know, atonal violin weird music. It's it's like it's so kind of the juxtaposition of the of the music and what's going on on the screen. At that particular point in, in time in the history of cinema, it was just like a very... Um, very much of a breakthrough or, or experimental kind of thing and you can't watch like imagine if somebody were to go into deep red and rescore it and make it totally different as far as its musical background it would be such a different movie um, there's so many scenes in that movie where um, the, the soundtrack and the stuff that goblin did really make the film um, and and you know the, the thing that people don't really talk about is that they had a composer who scored some of the other parts of Deep Red, some of the parts that Goblin didn't didn't uh, score. There's a, a few scenes where it's just there's a lot of suspense, and I think it's just the Goblin music just isn't there. It's like some other kind of interesting kind of suspenseful music, and I don't know exactly 
you know where that score comes from. I think it's uh, it's it's credited if you look at if you look at the soundtrack for the film, they have the giallo or the the goblin stuff, and they have the the other stuff too. But even like the very first scene, if you watch the extended cut, where Mark is kind of conducting his jazz orchestra, um, somebody had to write that music. I don't know where that came from. Uh, but it probably wasn't Goblin. It looked like it was probably from the other person who scored the the uh, the film. But what was um, Goblin's name before? And Argento's like, yeah, that name sucks. You have to change it. I don't know. It's it cherry, uh, cherry, and then like a number. I can't. Damn it. Just read this recently. Yeah, it was Cherry something. But yeah, it sounded like he descended down into the. The underground rock scene to go find something for this the score and found these guys Claudio Simonetti and his his group and it sounded like they wrote that Cherry Five Cherry Five okay they they wrote that initial score in like one night or something I mean it does sound kind of repetitive but it's also at the same time um because of that reason it's very catchy and it's it's really good. It's, yeah, I mean, it's very progressive. It sounds like Emerson, Lake and Palmer, and it sounds like Emerson, Lake and Palmer so much that Argento, when he got to Inferno, he grabbed Keith Emerson to write the score for wow. that particular film. Yeah. And I love that particular soundtrack. I don't know if you guys are into the Inferno soundtrack, but that one is, is one of my favorites. Yeah. And it's not Goblin. It's 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 Keith Emerson by you himself. You got it on vinyl? Uh, no, I, have, I had the CD at one point. Wow. Oh. Yeah, I think um, just this whole story, like you were talking about, it's it's very diverse. So it's almost got something for everyone. You got the lull, the children's lullaby, um, that's always kind of creepy, and then yeah, that really jazzy, suspenseful, up tempo, um, chase music, which I I actually kind of like a lot. But I mean, if we, if we're gonna get into kind of deconstructing it. And talking about the flaws, which you know we you know we should do because you know every film deserves a fair <laughs> shake, and I think Creep will will have a lot to contribute here. Um, <laughs> you know, you have to go when you when you when you start to look back and you you you've gone through the film and you've seen the whole thing and then you go back and you say, okay, well, why did this all happen in the first place? Um, so this woman, or the killer, I mean, everybody knows who the killer is, right? So, the, and I won't reveal it, because Creep always yells at me for spoiling the film before it's time to spoil the film. So the person who's the killer, and I won't say her, but it's her, she goes, <laughs> she goes to this psychic conference. She just happens to decide to go to the psychic conference, and the psychic decides or figures out that she's the killer. And she mentions enough information in her little revelation about the house and the child singing for the killer to say, okay, I'm going to be incriminated if I don't kill this woman. This and bitch be gone. Right. And she goes into the bathroom and she gets sick in the men's room for some reason. Um, and then she well, decides... Well, that shot when she was drinking the water and then it's like a close-up of her mouth and the water's just falling out of her mouth... That is seriously one of the most disturbing things I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a scene where it's it's a point of view shot where the killer gets up from her seat, his seat, her seat. I'm not spoiling it. She leaves her seat and <laughs> sorry, she goes to the bathroom 
and turns on the sink and looks in the mirror, but the mirror is like, it's the worst mirror on the planet. It's got like, it's like, it's got like charcoal on it. Like you can't see anything. It's just a blur. And then there's a, a man in the men's room, or is this a bathroom that's a unisex bathroom? And he's like, are you sick? Do you need some help? And I think like, that's the scene where the killer is shaken back into her psychotic frenzy, his, his, her psychotic frenzy. And then, you know, right after that, we go into that scene where we see all of those macro shots of all of the fetishistic the dolls and the yarn and the, the, the voodoo and the gloves and the, and the, the little squeaky devil toy and um, the, the switchblade um, and the killer starts killing again. But, you know, I mean, it's kind of like it's such a far-fetched beginning to this whole story. You know, and, and, you know, then we get into, okay, so, you know, she has to kill Helga because Helga knows who she is. Okay. But then Mark sees what's happening and he sees something and he hasn't figured out what it is yet, but he sees something and he's following these clues and the killer here is like, I'm going to kill you, but I didn't get a chance to because the phone rang at the just the right possible moment and Gianna called you and you're like, yeah, someone's trying to absolutely kill me, you know? And uh, then he just follows all these clues with the record and the sounds and the, the song and the book from the library and the girl. And it's like, it's just so far-fetched. It's so ridiculous. She should have um, just killed him after she killed Helga. Right. Like, well, I mean, but she left. She had left already, you know. So. Well, no, not like right after, but like if the killer was worried that Mark knew who the killer was, kill Mark. Kill the book author. But the reason why Mark and, knew who the killer was wasn't revealed until Gianna took his picture. And then he showed the newspaper to her when they were at the burial of Helga. And the funny thing is that book that I was talking about, The Broken Mirrors, Broken Minds, she mentions the fact that isn't it odd that Helga, who's clearly as Aryan as you get is having this Jewish funeral. Um, that's some interesting um, kind of commentary. I don't know. I, I didn't really notice it, but after she mentioned it in her book, I noticed it. So Why, just because her name's Helga Ullman? Well, she's like, you know, she's very blonde hair, blue-eyed and German. Yeah. Um, not likely to be Jewish, but... Um, you know, some stereotypes are not accurate. accurate, and some are. Sandra said, yes, the nice opera house-looking place with the bathroom mirror out of Big Springs, Texas desert, middle of nowhere gas station. Because, like, the place is all nice, but yeah. that one mirror in the bathroom yeah, right. looks like it. Um, the other thing about that, like, the... I think we're supposed to think it's a men's room for the sole purpose of putting us off the scent. Right. You know, and it's not the worst job of that that's been done. That's usually not one of my favorite things, but um, I didn't mind that in this. Well, it's like Bird, you know, trying to throw you off the scent of who's the killer, like in Bird with Crystal Plumage, so... Yeah, there's a lot of things you could talk about, like masculinity versus femininity, and 
you know, especially how... with his, his movies, dude. Oh yeah, yeah. He's got a lot of questions. Yeah, <laughs> he's got a lot of. He, he likes to explore things a little bit. But yeah, so things like just little touches like that are just enough. If you've already got your, you know, your preconceptions, that uh, definitely lead you astray. Which, you know, and I and I was saying that. I really like the story in this and everything, and I think it, it's more of what Chris was talking about earlier. It's just the the set pieces, and once you string them all together, it's just uh, it's fun to follow along with the ride. But yeah, the story itself, um, maybe it is it is like something from a dreamscape where it, it doesn't make sense, and maybe that's why that empty villa feels or that empty uh, city square feels so weird to me because it feels like it's out of a dream. You know you when you dream you don't really see a lot of other people around it's usually just you or someone else in an empty space mm. that's kind of how this feels to me um or the villa or that house out in the middle of nowhere just that woman all by herself with the the uh of course the uh stereotypical housekeeper a crazy maid yeah yeah so i uh, just just little things like that that maybe this by itself the story is ridiculous and is mark's relationship with uh, Carlo and Gianna are unnecessary and out of place, but just all together, it's just a, I think, kind of interesting to follow along with. I, 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 I wanted to see what happened at the author's house, even though it made no sense for the killer to go there. The fact that Mark figured out that he was going to go there, and that's so what the killer thought, well, I better get there first. It's kind of interesting, and the fact that the woman scrawled something on the mirror in the hopes that someone would read it if the mirror ever fogged up again. Right. Just so, you know, that would never happen, but it did, and it was a great... great it story. was cool. Like, that, yeah. uh, as silly as that part is, like, that was like, I'm like, oh, shit, yeah. I right. mean, for me, the biggest what-the-fuck moment is this weird little dummy robot running oh. out of the closet <laughs> right. attack, for fucking no reason at all. Some time on that. Like, yeah, that's... For sure. That was just like, wow, this chick is elaborate, you know? Like, There's something to do with dolls, but I just, I guess, you know, I never figured it out, even with knowing what the ending was, um, you know, that... Still doesn't make a lot of sense. That, that shows bit. the killer's hand kind of playing with some dolls during the goblin music, the montage scenes, and then you've got the dolls hanging from, you know, so you were wondering if this is... The, there was some kind of hanging murder or something like that that's going to either happen or it did already happen. It's just some some weird things. It's more about the imagery than about any kind of yeah yeah um, foreshadowing yeah, totally. or anything. I mean, even in, um, in the in, when they go to the school towards the end, like the killer decided to take the time to draw this weird drawing on a chalkboard of somebody hanging from a noose. I mean, like you know, why would that happen? Yeah. Or they you well, know, one of my. Oh, go ahead. I was going to throw one more just weird WTF out there. The, you know, Mark seeing that, that little girl, Olga, had drawn the same mural that he found after he scratched away the plaster on the wall of that abandoned house. It's like the things that had to happen for that sequence of events, <laughs> it's just so microscopic in the yeah. probability. It's like, <laughs> and then so he traced that to the school, you know, to go look at the archival drawings. Just, yeah, crazy. Sorry, Um, No, that's cool. I was just going to say, like, my favorite thing about this movie, besides the 
opening bit has got to be the reveal of the yeah. killer. Oh, yeah. And one of the things that I like about it the most is that they don't hide it. If right. you're watching the movie, because I was watching this movie and my daughter like came in and sat down at the very beginning of the movie. She's like, oh, what are you watching? And I, this was probably a couple years ago. And so she was like 10. She sits down, we're watching the movie, and then she's like, the killer's right there, it's the old lady. <laughs> right in the she beginning. saw it in the mirror? Whoa. Yeah, right off the bat, dude. Yeah, it's uh-huh. awesome. She's like, how did that guy not see her standing there in the hall? These right kids there? today, I'm telling well, you. It's just like, but again, they're, so, like, they're so much smarter than we are. It's, it's just that like Argento never in his wildest dreams in 1975 thought that there would be these like really crisp DVD prints of right. his movie <laughs> that people could watch over and over and over again. Right. And we've talked about this before. I don't remember. Slow-mo and freeze frame. Yeah, but like when the Pan and Scan movies came out, when like this was released on video, you couldn't see that. Right. You know what I'm saying? That's true. Like you never even knew. So for fucking 15 years or so, no one, none of us knew like what the fuck was going to happen. You know, no, none of us knew what the fuck he was missing. Yeah. And so, like, just, like, that whole idea of that. And, again, Argento didn't know that when he made the movie. But the fact that he left that clue, that, like, hint. Because people, some people were going to see that. And the whole movie would be ruined for, like, maybe 10% of the people in the audience. You know? But it would be fun for them to go, ah, see, I told you, motherfucker. I yeah. told you. But I wonder, I wonder if he was trying to do something where it was more of a subliminal kind of thing, where oh, you know, it totally was. That was like on the screen for a split second, and everybody saw it, but they just didn't realize that they saw it. And it, you bring up a good point. I think that this film, um, more than more than any other Jalo that I can think of, maybe Tenebrae or maybe Bird suffers so much from its pan and scan version or from the version that they put out in in on VHS because yeah. there's so much visual information on this film that gets cut off when you give it a four to three four by three aspect ratio um, that you know really t- help to tell the story I mean it's just insane there's a scene where um, Carlo and Mark are out by the fountain. It's and it's after Mark has been released by the police, and they're talking about um, what Mark may have seen or may have not seen. And it's the fountain, and Mark is on one side of the fountain, and Carl is on the other. And if you watch the the old version that was on VHS, it's only one person on the screen. And if you watch the you know you know the newer versions, you can see the full scoped out version of the film where Mark is on one side of the fountain and Carlos on the other and he's drunk and Mark is shouting things all the way across the, the, the square at him and and Carlo is saying things like under his breath and Mark is saying what did you say and and Argento's really like big on this idea of putting people in situations where they can't communicate well to each other. There's another scene in that movie where um, Mark 
calls Gianna at the newspaper, and he's in a restaurant where the guy is making cappuccino, and it's really loud, and the steam is flying out. And meanwhile, Gianna is in the newspaper headquarters, and there's people running around everywhere, and she's trying to find somebody that she can write a number down. And and Argento does that a lot in his films. He loves to... Didn't he do that in Bird? Um, he called, yeah. like, a newspaper place, and... What was that bird? I don't he know was if it was for somebody and called a newspaper place and they were like they were making newspapers in the background. It was super fucking loud. I don't remember. I actually, might have been Seven Blood Saint Orchids again. I don't know. Never mind. Go ahead. But but Argento loves to do that. He loves to like when he when you're when he's trying to explain some of the plot points or explain the story or move the story along, he puts these characters in situations that are awkward and make it difficult for them to communicate with each other. And um, you know, I I I, I clearly that's you know uh, for for a specific purpose for a specific reason. Um, but in, in, in Deep Red, it's really evident that, you know, he's, he's trying to move the story along, but there's some symbolism there, like, you know, it's not going to be an easy, an easy road to figure out this, this issue. Um, new, but, you know, I think that, you know, Creep, you've mentioned this several times because we've talked about Deep Red on some of the other casts and we're finally covering it now, but. Um, that middle part, um, it really does kind of divide the the audience. Some people really like um, this prolonged uh, exploration of the house. And eventually you get to the point where um, Mark has uncovered this painting. Um, and the painting, I forget exactly what it shows. It shows... Um, Somebody who's been stabbed and a, and a picture of a little kid holding the knife, I think. But then as he walks away, another piece of the painting falls off. And if you've watched this film on anything other than the Blu-ray, it's very hard to see what the painting looks like when the other piece falls off. But that is a clue towards this, uh, you know, to point to, you know, who's involved in this and... The fact that there's not just two people involved in this murder thing that happened at the house, but there's three people involved. And then, of course, you know, he leaves and he comes back again and he tries to get in and he finally makes his way into this room that he, you know, there, there's so many of these things that happen. Like, you know, he doesn't see what happened in the mirror. And he also notices that the killer walks away. But at the same time, Carlo is in the scene. And then also, what about that picture of the house in the book? And then when he drives to go look at it, he realizes that there's that whole room that's been walled off. And he goes back up and um, all this crazy progressive rock music is going on. And he's like trying to like do this kind of Tarzan thing where he's trying to you know, break through the, the, the side of the plaster and get into the wall and finally sees the... Uh, the corpse that's in the chair that's just a skeleton and then the next scene he's he's been hit over the head by something and then he's out in the in, in on the ground and the, the house is on fire and you know they do this red herring where they slowly pan up to Gianna and it's like well you know 
maybe she's the killer. You know, after all this, you know, she's really the one who did it. And they, they try to point towards her for a second or two. and then. Well, it's just like I'm sitting here going, like, do you even need that whole fucking bit in the movie? Like, does it really, is it that fucking important? And then I'm like, it could totally be cut out. And I'm like, no, you know, it's he's figuring out clues. But at the end of the day, all he has to do is fucking remember who he saw in the fucking mirror. Right. And right. the movie's over. So you don't need to have any of that shit in it. You know what, if but we all had that luxury, then life would be so much easier. But that's the same thing that happened in Bird. I mean, in Bird, he goes all the way on a train to visit that guy who eats cats to ask him about the and he doesn't find out anything. And when he finally but comes again, back, he realizes that back it's... To that thing that Argento has one script, <laughs> and he just changes the character names and the witty dialogue, <laughs> and he's off to the races, you know? That's all you need. But maybe, you know, for Argento, the, the, the script is really secondary to... You know, gives, is, him, yeah. gives him an excuse to really have some fun with his camera. He's the George Lucas of Italy. <laughs> He's the Jar. Uh, 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 Mark Daly is the Jar Jar Binks of uh, the Giallo genre. Yeah. Um, but the other thing is, is that when the killer's finally revealed and the big thing happens at the end, I think the necklace would break. Yeah, yeah. would have. Yeah, you know, I mean, it might have been a strong necklace, and she might have had a weak neck. Right. But that's a, a great scene. Like, that's a great death. It's a great... Um, it ends the movie nicely. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, the, the only thing that I have a pro I don't know if I have a problem with the last scene as much as it feels a little awkward or a little strange is that, okay, the, um, the necklace gets caught in the elevator... The decapitation happens, and you have this close-up of her spitting out this white stuff, whatever that is. And then we have this prolonged shot of the elevator going up or down, and then stopping, and then the credits roll. And I guess that, you know, for the 1975 audience, that situation was so shocking that they were able that you know they, they just needed to have that extra two or three or four seconds of the elevator moving up and down for people to recover from what they had just seen but when I watch it I'm like why is there so much time devoted to us just watching this you know this chain dangling with the blood on it I mean you know maybe I'm just you know, You're two, just two. an asshole. Because death yeah, is it's something that it. death is so final. For a little while, I'll let you know that. No, I thought I thought the whole ending sequence, just the reveal of the killer, like Creep said, was was really um, interesting. Because the first time I watched it, yeah, I, I watched it on the exact same Blu-ray that I have now, um, the very first time. I did not see the woman in the mirror. I'm so focused on watching the middle, watching the character walking down the hallway, yep. seeing what's ahead of him, not what's to the side of him. So this time I was like, all right, I'm going to watch it this time. And I watched it. I watched the uh, him passing through that hallway, and it actually felt like it lingered on her for really, like it was probably a split second or less than a second, but it felt like a long it time. like a long time. Give me right, a once, long... You know where, once you know where to look, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so... So that part, I was like, wow, I can't believe I didn't see that earlier. And 
and uh, it was just one of those. I like. I like. I kind of like being um, played for a fool like that. I mean, even with the ending, yeah. Um, Carlo comes out, and you think it's him. You think he's he's been behind it the whole time, and you're like, damn it, it was so easy, right right under my nose. Why didn't I think of that? And it's kind of you're like watching this along with Marcus, who he thinks you know it's his buddy, and so he's done away with quite. Um, gruesomely at the right. hands of a, a passing car. Oh my god, like, that's a great scene. Um, but yeah, then all of a sudden he, he has this light bulb moment. He's like, wait a second, I saw yeah. uh, Carlo out on the city square as the same, at the same time as I saw the killer leaving the house. And it's like, why didn't, you know, as a viewer, you're thinking, I saw that too. Why didn't I right. remember that? Exactly. Or um, why did Carlo not wave to his mom? Yeah. <laughs> hey, mom. <laughs> right. Where are you going? Um, so it's just things like that I like. I like kind of being tricked and played played for a fool. And uh, when it was revealed to be the woman, you know, it's kind of like, all right, you know, why why did all this happen then? Like what Chris was saying, but it's still kind of fun. And, and yeah, I, I like the way Argento kills off his bad guys. But but I have to say too that that reveal. I went to see Deep Red in the theater when um, they did that um, Jalo Fever in New York City. Um, the the second one of those was the one I went to recently, but the first one they did, I went to see, and I think it was like The Strange Vice of Mrs. Ward, and then Deep Red, and then Solange. So it was a triple feature, and um, Deep Red was a really nice print uh, of the film, but it was the American version. But when they got to that reveal, there were there were several people in the audience who gave a, an audible like gasp when they showed, you know, um, Martha. I think that's her name in the mirror when he's like, "Oh, it was a mirror. It wasn't a painting." So it, it's still. I think the reason why everybody likes Deep Red as much as they do is because it's still effective. It hasn't really suffered too much from the passing of time. I think it still has a lot of kind of jump, it doesn't have necessarily jump scares, but it definitely has that kind of take you by surprise uh, moments. Um, yeah. And together with the way, uh, how, how gorgeous it is filmed and the music, I think that's why it's so popular. Agreed. We did it. Just remember, you guys, when you're up in the air, you'll come back down one way or another. Fucking gravity. That's part of that witty dialogue that I... I, li- I like the, <laughs> the script sometimes. Like, with the the mom. and Like, yeah, you saw, like, those periphery characters were a lot of fun. Just the mom kept forgetting he was a pianist. You know, he kept telling her that he was. And she, I don't an know. engineer pianist. What a great combination. Yeah, she kept calling him an engineer. It's like, what is? Does this have to do with anything? But I like it. Uh, the other, the other scene, the other scene that's really just awkward, that I always remember is when it's Gianna and Mark and the two guys from the conference are all standing on the stage, and they're recounting what happened, and Gianna is like standing off to the side and she's in the shadows, and the one guy says, "I seem to remember some sort of movement in the third or fourth row," and she goes. What sort of movement? And he goes, "What, please?" And she and she walks out from the shadows, and, she, and then all of a sudden she's in the light, and she said, "I said, 
what sort of movement? And then he starts to explain what the movement is, and Argento fades the scene out as the camera is spinning around. It's just the weirdest, most awkward scene I've ever seen in a movie. But the, but the reason why that, that scene stands out for me is because I've seen so many versions of this film, um, and, and the only version that really does it right is the DVD and the Blu-ray. But before that, because of the way that they had to deal with the lighting, I guess, with, with Dario Nicolotti's character in the shadows walking into the light, um, it just didn't look right at all. Like if you look, if you watch the Blu-ray now, it looks normal. But the VHS copies and some of the Laserdisc copies that I used to watch, um, it just looks so weird. And so she's walking out of the shadow and she's going, I said what sort of movement you know like she's about to say something profound but then she just asks a question of what sort of movement you know and it's the same thing with that with that scene where they're in the library or whatever and the guy's talking about i seem to remember a book about a child and a song and I'm like who is this guy like he's nuts and, and, and you know it sends mark on this wild goose chase to find the book and but um yeah, it, it's 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 a weird film, and, and some people say that it's kind of an anti-Jalo Jalo because it kind of takes all of the conventions that Argento set forth in the beginning with Bird and with Cat and with Four Flies, and kind of changes it up and and turns it on its ear a little bit. But I don't know. That's maybe that's reading a little bit too much into it. So I don't know. kind of like Wes Craven with Scream, what he tried to do. Right, exactly. You know, he was a part With of the, the movement. He also meta, came back to the meta slasher. Yeah, you know. the meta jolly. Meta jolly. Isn't that Giallo by Dario Argento? Yeah. <laughs> I still haven't seen that. that it's great. Even. It's great. Is it better I than love... um, Eyeball? No. <laughs> Could uh... anything be better than the Eyeball? Is Deep Red better than Eyeball? Not no. for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, another thing about this show is that um, I guess this is the final full-time episode for The Phantom. Uh, we had to bring that up, didn't we? <laughs> That, you're that sick of talking about Deep Red? You're kicking me off the show? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. Sick of um, talking about Deep Red. Kicking you off the show. Yeah. I mean... Speech. Yeah. Speech. Speech. Um, yeah, you Call guys have known for a while. Um, it's kind of been at some time coming, but I wanted to make sure I didn't just fall off the face of the podcast, as so often happens with other shows. Um, without giving it my all through the uh, big five zero, and um, I can't—I don't know—it was something I started to realize around the summer. My attention started to go in other places, but I wasn't giving it my full attention like I wanted to. Um, so I realized some things would have to go, and unfortunately, this podcast um, was something I'm, I'd have to cut out of my life at least on a full-time basis. You know, I don't really do a lot on the show. It's—it's it's not that it takes up ample amounts of time. Um, Chris and Creep 
uh, especially do a lot of the post work and, and stuff like that. But as I've grown from a boy into a man <laughs> these last two years, I've uh, found that any free time that I have comes kind of at a premium. And I'm the one that doesn't have kids out of us three, so I don't know what I'm talking about. That's the funniest part. <laughs> yeah, so that's the um, funny part. Yeah, well, no, I mean, it makes it makes perfect sense because you have lots of opportunities to do things, and I have time. I have no time, and this is like the one thing that keeps me from yeah. jumping off a cliff. <laughs> I know that's. I mean, I do feel a little. Like, uh, maybe I've taken it for granted and I'll, I'll end up missing it. So, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't latch on to Jello movies. You know, when I started this thing, I knew ne- next to nothing about these, these movies. Um, but I've come to learn so much and develop my own appreciation for the films. Um, and, you know, through these dusty old movies, I've gotten to meet a lot of great people, including you two. Um, yeah, I know. I had to get a little sentimental, but. <laughs> Well, the door is always open. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I just, you know, after 50 movies, it just... I still haven't gotten that, that love or appreciation that so many people have that I see on the Facebook group or with you two. Um, so I'm just, you know... You guys, I know you guys are taking a break until 2016, probably. Um, I think it's just it's nice to kind of step away from it for a while. At least that's what I'm going to do. Um... I know I don't know how much things are going to change, but I think you know I'll definitely come back um, as long as the door's open for you know more of a part-time basis, not you know sure. not a full-time thing. Of course, it's just time to forge ahead with a few things I've been putting off for a little bit, and who knows, maybe my absence will indeed make my heart grow fond for the world of um, Edward Fennick and Martino and Ercole and the rest of the crew. Um, well, the interest—the interesting thing is that we've covered 50 films, and I think we've covered most of what most people would consider the classics. Yeah. So I mean, there's you know, no more Edwidge left, so why would I stay? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So it's going to be interesting because you know my my website has 50 films, and now we've reached a 50 film uh, amount. Uh, there's only a few. Uh, I'm too drunk to figure out the math here, um, <laughs> but there's only a few films maybe on my site that we haven't covered on the podcast. Maybe I don't know. Mm. Um, but now, what's interesting about Jalo is that there's probably another what 50 or 60 more films that fall into the category that are interesting or maybe aren't interesting. You know, that's the question. I, I've been, you know, I've been wondering for... I'm going to run the show into the ground. There you go. <laughs> I've been wondering for the past year or so whether or not the films that I haven't seen yet are, if there's any, if, if there's any of them in in that, in this, in this collection of, of films, is there any left that are still as good as the ones we've covered already? So... I guess the only way to find out is to to watch them. Is there a movie better than Eyeball out there? Maybe that's what's going to keep the show going, that endless chase, the Holy Grail. The bizarre sister of Eyeball. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
Well, I guess what I'm hoping this open this kind of opens the door for anyone who you know, even if you're, you know, on a total opposite time zone or something, you know, just that that passionate group of people that are on the on the, on Facebook and elsewhere that maybe aren't on the group but still listen to us, you know, make it it's kind of a rotating guest spot if you guys I mean that probably makes more work for you guys <laughs> trying to organize schedules and things like that but just yeah, to just open it up to people throw who that, throw that out there Eric throw yeah. that out let, let us say <laughs> walk away but just yeah, giving, <laughs> giving that uh, yeah that open forum or that open spot to talk <clears> with <throat> because there's been some movies where I've just struggled you know for as many, as many um, you know movies that I've loved and you know, I'm so glad that they're a part of my life now. There's been quite a few where it's just been kind of like, why am I here? I don't have anything <laughs> to contribute. <laughs> to, you know, like, just those random offshoot movies that we've covered. You know, like, that endless search, you know. Are we going to find something that's as great as Eyeball, or are we going to talk endlessly about something like <laughs> Footprints on the Moon, or yeah, you know, perversion story, which is they're fine movies in their own right, but they're just you know. Well, there's a lot of stuff left that I think deserves a fair shake. Like, uh, Bloodstained Butterfly is supposed to be a really good film. Yeah, and, and a uh, dragonfly for each corpse. Right. Sure. I had that one on my on my eventual because I keep kind of a list of things I might want to introduce. So, I mean, yeah, like I said, if. If something comes up that piques my interest, then you know I'm gonna still be active on the group and everything. So I'm gonna come track you guys down and say, "Let me talk about this damn movie." Yeah, well, there you go. We'll, we'll send you a, a list of the the ones we're gonna cover, and yeah. you know, you pick and choose. Okay, yeah. why not? See, see how I feel after this holiday season. Yep. Well, um, I guess that's the end of the year for us. Which is, it's only like we're missing like a week. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> you know, it sounds like it's like a very big farewell. But, um, so, yeah. And um, me and Chris, I guess, are going to have a chat sometime over the next couple weeks to figure out what we're doing next. Because we haven't talked about it yet. We haven't. And I would like, I'd like to chat it up a bit figure out some maybe brilliant ideas or something alright so um, this was a super fat episode full of good stuff full of sad stuff who's the guy who used to complain that our episodes were too long he's not around he hasn't been around for a long time oh okay (laughs) no I don't know that ship sailed. He's like, fuck these guys. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, so until next year, everybody, and let's give a big chow-chow to Eric. Oh, uh, he's pouring his drink out. It's oh, empty, yeah. you guys. Chow-chow, Eric. Chow-chow, Chow-chow, Eric. Until we chow-chow again. Happy holidays to everyone. Yes. And, uh, and to all, to you all. all right, see you guys later. <laughs> yeah, we're doing that next. <laughs> okay, see you guys. <laughs>